Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. Uh, we've been walking through Second Samuel, uh, a chapter at a time. We're actually going to pause for a little bit uh, tonight. The last two weeks have been rather unpleasant. Uh, looking at Second Samuel 11 and 12, and 13 is worse, and I couldn't, I just couldn't do back to back to back. So, we're going to take a break and look back at those. Uh, particularly at chapter 11, it's pivotal in the life of David. You'll see here kind of a trajectory of his life. We're introduced to him in 1 Samuel 16. He's chosen by God to be the king. And then from 1 Samuel 17 through 2 Samuel 4, we have God preparing and and positioning David for that calling. Uh, Some of that preparing and positioning is, is glorious. He defeats Goliath. And in an age when there's no mass media, no social media, if you're a nat- to, to be a national figure, killing a nine-foot-tall giant, that kind of puts you on the stage. And so people know him. Uh, he, he gets pulled into Saul, who's the king. He gets pulled into his inner circle and maybe sees some of the inner workings of being a king. But much of that time is actually difficult for him. He spends it in the wilderness probably a decade. He's on the run from Saul, who's trying to kill him. Uh, but he does learn a lot. God is deepening his faith. It's showing him what it looks like to trust the Lord, to move him into the right place at the right time. Um, There's 600 men who are drawn to David, for lack of a better word. They're not the cream of the crop. They're in debt. They're distressed and they're disgruntled. They and their wives and their kids all come to David in the wilderness, but he learns how to lead. And he leads these 2,000 people for a period of several years. Um, he, He actually becomes the king of Judah, a small tribe within Israel for seven and a half years, gets them on the job training, and God is, again, preparing him and positioning him. And we see David's not perfect for sure, neither his intentions nor his behavior, but he does seem uh, to be someone who's tracking with the Lord and living under God's favor. Then in 2 Samuel 5, David becomes the king of Israel, and in 6 through 10, we see this string of successes in David's life. He captures Jerusalem, first person to do that, makes it the capital of Israel, brings the Ark of the Covenant, this symbol of God's presence, into the center of the nation. Uh, God enters into a covenant with David and says, you're always going to have a descendant on the throne forever. David defeats all of the enemies of Israel, all the surrounding nations he defeats. And again, David, he's flourishing as the king. And if you didn't know the story and you were just reading it, When you get to 2 Samuel 11, it's like you run into a brick wall. It's completely out of the blue. David's army is 40 miles away fighting the Ammonites in Rabbah, and David is innocently walking on the roof of his house one night, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath, Bathsheba, and he sends someone to ask about her, and it comes back that she's married, and David doesn't care. He sends for her anyway, and he sleeps with her, and rather that being some kind of fling or one-night stand, she gets pregnant, and then the gears start spinning, and David's mind, and he concocts this scheme to get her husband Uriah back off the battlefield, try to make, manipulate him to spend the night with his wife Bathsheba so Uriah will think the baby's his. Doesn't work. Uriah's righteous. He says, my men are on the battlefield, and that's where my heart is, and far be it from me to spend the night with my wife. I'm not doing that. And so then David is backed into a corner, and his idea is, well, I've got to, I've got to kill him. And so he arranges through Uriah's commander, Joab, to position Uriah in the battle in a particularly vulnerable spot so that the Ammonites will kill him. And that happens. And after Uriah's death, David marries Bathsheba and they have a son. And on the day this baby is born, God sends Nathan, a prophet, to David to confront him about his sin. And this 
sin that Numbers 15 calls it, your Bible may call it, he sinned defiantly or, or sin with a high hand. It's this idea that I know what God desires for me to do and I don't care, I'm doing what I want. It's deliberate, it's intentional, it's conscious. And according to the Bible, Numbers 15, 30, and 31, like there's no forgiveness for that. You sin that way and you're cut off from the people. And Nathan approaches David and he confronts him with this sin and he says, that's what you did. You despised the word of the Lord and you despised the Lord himself. You thought little of them. You ran through every stop sign. You ran through every red light. You knew not to commit adultery and you knew she was a married woman. You knew not to commit murder and you put Uriah in a position to be killed. You're responsible for both of those things. You've despised God and you've despised his word. And David's response, to his credit, I've sinned before the Lord. He acknowledges his sin. You can read Psalm 51 and see the depth of brokenness and contrition in his heart. And what God says to him through Nathan is, you're not going to be killed. You're forgiven. There's no provision in the law for forgiveness for the sin that David committed in the way that he committed them. And God in his mercy chooses to forgive David. But there will be consequences to that sin. Within a week, the baby's dead. God strikes this baby with an illness, and he's dead on the seventh day after he's born. And because David sowed this sexual sin into Uriah's house, he reaps sexual sin in his own house. Because he sows violence into Uriah's house, he reaps violence in his own house. And the next seven chapters of Second Samuel from 13 to 20, it's a catalog of these consequences playing out in David's life. And what looks like to me just an inability of David to kind of get his, his arms around it. He seems very passive. It's very different from the David that we've seen up until chapter 11. He just, for, for whatever reason, maybe he's just morally unable to engage, particularly with his sons, when they go off the rails. And we'll see that playing out. You may want to see what other churches are doing through June. Come on back after that. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. But at the end of chapter 12, we see David restored. The consequences of his sin, the earthly consequences, he has to bear for a period of time. And God is with him in that for sure. He's not abandoned. God is with him in that. He's completely forgiven by the Lord. And he's restored. He's restored to God. He worships at the end of chapter 12 after his baby dies. His response is to worship the Lord. He's restored to his family. He and Bathsheba have a son together, Solomon. And we know Solomon will succeed David on the throne. He's restored to Israel. He leads the Israelites in a victorious campaign against the Ammonites at the end of chapter 12. So he is restored. And yet there's this limping forward, for lack of a better word, in his family. And I don't believe that's the fault of the Lord at all. It's just a reality of the consequences of David's choices. So before we dive into the consequences and how that plays out in his family, I do want to step back and look at that chapter 11, such a pivotal chapter. When David's first introduced to us, we actually know something about David before we, before we know his name. And it's 1 Samuel 13, when God is rejecting Saul, he says to Saul through the prophet Samuel, if you'd been obedient, I'd have put one of your descendants on the throne forever. You disobeyed. And so God is looking for someone after his own heart or like his own heart or according to his own heart because you broke the commands of the Lord. So we know because David is the one who God chooses That he's a man after God's own heart. There's something about David's heart that's pleasing to the Lord. When Samuel goes to Bethlehem, David's hometown, 
to, to meet with David's father, Jesse, to try to figure out, okay, who's the Lord's anointed. The first person he sees is Jesse's firstborn son, Eliab, and he looks the part. He's handsome, he's tall, he's the oldest. So the natural assumption is that that's, that's the next king. And God says to Samuel, nope, that's not the way I judge. Y'all people, y'all look at the outside, that's not what I do. I look at the heart. Again, it indicates there's something about David's insides that God is pleased with. When Paul in Acts 13 is talking about David, knowing the full story, he knows everything about David at that point. It's all been written down. It's a thousand year old history. He says, this is a man after God's own heart. Someone who would do everything that the Lord asked. Some, everything that the Lord said. So there's this picture of David, his identity, I would say. More than a psalmist, more than a warrior, more than the greatest king in Israel's history is man after God's own heart. That's what he's known as. Before we know his name, that's what he's known as. He's what he's known as in the New Testament as well. We know also that that doesn't mean he was perfect in his behavior, wasn't perfect in his intentions, but there was something about him that pleased the Lord. And yet he sinned. He sinned egregiously in Second Samuel 11. We saw some uh, sins that he, you maybe want to consider them minor. I don't know how you want to classify sin. But we saw in 1 Samuel as well, there were times where he definitely acted selfishly, where he was deceitful, where his anger got the better of him. He's not a perfect man, and yet he's a man after God's own heart. That made me think about us. If you're in Christ, the new identity that you receive from him. And there's some scriptures there up on the screen, and it's just a random pulling from the New Testament. There are plenty of others that you could grab onto. When we're in Christ, we're a new creation. We're in Christ. When he looks at us, we're part of the church, so he sees us as pure and holy and spotless and blameless and without stain or wrinkle. We're sons or daughters of God. We're chosen people, royal priesthood, God's special possession. All those things are true of us. And yet we're all honest enough to say, you know what, we sin too. And sometimes our sins are unintentional and maybe even seem trivial to some degree. And sometimes they're deliberate. And sometimes they're conscious. And sometimes they're even egregious. And the tension that we see in David, a man after God's own heart, who also commits adultery and murder, we see that same tension within us. We're new creation, and yet we continue to wrestle with our own sinfulness. I think there may be something David could teach us about that tension and walking and growing in it. When we looked at at 2 Samuel 11 a couple of weeks ago, one of the things that we talked about was the importance of dealing with the handholds. You've got to deal with the evil desires in your own heart, not just try to modify your behavior. It's not enough to say, I'm just not going to sin anymore in this way. That doesn't work. Behavior modification. We've got to address the evil desires in our own heart that temptation is grabbing onto. I think something else, multiple wives, and he had many concubines. 2 Samuel 5.13 says that. In Jerusalem, David took many concubines, and he married many wives. And so what that tells me is that David was able to act on his lust really with impunity. He was able to either marry or bring him to his harem any woman that he wanted. And just at that point, there had not been any of them that were married. And so it was all socially acceptable. Genesis 2 tells us God's standard for marriage. One man, one woman, permanently. And also throughout the Bible, we see God's standard for sex, which is within the context of marriage. One man, one woman. That's righteous. Anything other than that, with anyone other than that, is unrighteous. Doesn't matter how much you love the person, doesn't matter how long you've been with them, doesn't matter if you're consenting adults, none of that matters. If you're not husband and wife, married, committed for life, 
then any sex is unrighteous. But for David, he was able to act on his lust in a way that fell short of that Genesis 2 standard and yet was still culturally and socially acceptable. It was okay to be a polygamist in David's day. And it was okay for a king to have a harem in David's day. There was nothing for him to be ashamed of. There was nothing for him to be embarrassed about. He could do those, he could have multiple wives publicly and he could have a harem publicly. No shame associated with it. In Jeremiah 6, when God's about to judge the nation of Judah, he says through the prophet Jeremiah, y'all aren't ashamed of anything that you do anymore. You don't even know how to blush. That's what he says about them. You don't even know how to blush. David didn't blush over having many wives and many concubines. And I was thinking about that for us. There's a list here of New Testament Sin, remember four words from the New Testament in terms of how to live. You love God and you love people. That's it. Those are the only two commands. But throughout the New Testament, that's broken down into some more specific behaviors just to give us some handles. And those are some of the specific behaviors. Doing those things is not loving God and it's not loving people. I was thinking about that and wondering, what are the sins that for us are socially acceptable? What are the sins for us, we commit them and we don't feel ashamed? In the best sense of feeling ashamed. What are the sins that I commit that I don't even blush over anymore? Not just collectively what sins are socially acceptable, but what about for me? What are the behaviors that I engage in that God would say are unrighteous, although my culture would say those things are fine? They've lost, those sins have lost their sting for me. They've lost the stigma. I don't blush about those things. Anymore. I don't know what you would pick out of the list. Sexual immorality, for sure, that's all the time, everywhere. Drunkenness, I do think that's socially acceptable. You're not allowed to drink and drive, but you can get drunk all you want. And then, you know, your team wins, you can get drunk. Your team loses, you can get drunk. If you're really happy, you can. If you're really sad, you can. If you turn 21, you can. When you turn 22, you can. When you turn 18, you can't. Like, it doesn't matter. As long as you don't hurt anybody else, it's okay. Gossip. Come on, how many times have you had a conversation that starts like this? I don't want to gossip, but, and then they gossip. Or maybe that's how you start conversations. Sometimes greed, absolutely, that's enshrined in our economic system. Greed is a socially acceptable sin. Obscenity, holy moly. Cussing is everywhere. In the church, I hear people say things, I'm like, what are you, I don't even get it. Like, no shame at all for any. A lot of those things, like, think about your vocabulary. Those things, they seem minor and they're trivial and they don't, what's the, who's it hurt and what's the big deal? Two things we know about sin from James 1. One is that it grows and two is that it produces death. That's all it does. It grows and it produces death. If you or, or I engage in these behaviors that the Lord would say are unrighteous, but our society or culture would say are fine. If I'm going to let society and culture define righteousness and wickedness for me, if I'm going to engage in those socially acceptable sins, what I'm basically doing is allowing a spiritual cancer to grow and fester in my heart, and at some point it's going to kill me. That's what cancer does. It's going to grow and it's going to kill me. It doesn't make any sense to me that we allow those things To fester. Yes, they're minor in some degree if you want to grade them, and they don't seem to hurt anybody in some regard, and in some ways they seem trivial. 
But sin grows and it produces death. And I want to encourage you. We talked about this prayer a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 139. God, search me and know me. Show me my heart. Show me if there are any offensive ways in me. Maybe you could amend that. God, search my heart. Know me. Let me know if there are any offensive ways in me. Particularly, let me know if there are any ways in me that are offensive to you that are no longer offensive to me. I need to know what I should be blushing about. If I'm engaging in behavior that I should be ashamed of before you, you need to let me know. So I can acknowledge that before you and repent. After David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, he kicks in. I call it a, a deceitful scheme. He creates this scenario to try to get Uriah back with Bathsheba and then to get Uriah killed. He's the chess master moving the pieces around. That's not the first time he's done that. We see at least twice in 1 Samuel when his back is against the wall. And in this case, he literally is running for his life. He defaults to these deceitful schemes. It always involves lying. And he's doing it in order to save himself, which maybe is a good motive. I don't know, but it plays out very poorly for him. Once he's running from Saul and he's in a town called Nob and a guy named Ahimelech, who's a priest, says, why are you here and, uh, and where is Saul? And David lies to him, leads him to believe that he and Saul are still in right relationship. And so Ahimelech helps him, gives him some bread and gives him Goliath's sword. And then he moves on. And then Saul finds out that Ahimelech helped him and he says to him, why did you help him? You know, he's traitor and he kills him. Saul kills Ahimelech and he kills 85 priests in that town in, in addition to some other men. In that town. And when David finds out, he says, That's my fault. That's on me. It's this deceitful scheme that kind of blows up in his face. David saves his own skin, but it costs a whole town. The end of 1 Samuel, he's running. He's in a Philistine town called Ziklag because he's running from Saul and he allows the Philistine king. Well, he doesn't allow. He flat tells the Philistine king when the Philistine king says, Well, how are you spending your time? His name is Achish. How are you spending your time? And he says to Achish, I'm raiding Israelite villages. It's a lie. He's not doing that. He's raiding the enemies of Israel. But he says to this Philistine king, I'm raiding Israelite villages. He's trying to protect himself. And so then when the Philistines enter into a battle with the Israelites, Achish says to David, you've been fighting the Israelites for uh, 18 months. Just come on and fight them with us. David's in a terrible position where he's going to have to fight his own countrymen with his enemy and with the enemy of God, these Philistines. Thankfully, God intervenes and that decision never has to be made. But again, it's this picture of David when his back's against a wall, when he's in a corner, he resorts or reverts to this deceitful scheming. What can he do to get out of the mess? We don't see that all the time, for sure. There are times when we see him prayerfully depending upon the Lord, waiting upon the Lord to extreme lengths. But there are times where he's crunched and caught and vulnerable and he takes matters into his own hands. And I wonder for you and for me, what's my default when I'm caught, when I'm backed into a corner, when I'm up against the wall? Do I lie like David? Does that come easily to me? Do I blame like Saul? Some people play the victim card. Woe is me. Have pity on me. Some people get really, really angry and hope the force of their personality and presence kind of overwhelms the situation. In January of this year, I felt like the Lord, one of the things he wants me to work on about me, the phrase I heard was apologize first. That was the phrase that popped into my mind. I was like, I hadn't been wrong since the 90s. What am I, what am I apologizing for? And he's like, that's the problem. 
when I, when I have been, when I'm confronted with something that I did wrong, my initial response is to tell you why I'm right and you're wrong. And eventually I may apologize for why my rightness might have hurt your feelings, but I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong. And I, from the Lord, I think this word apologize first is don't, it doesn't matter, like, don't, don't try to, it's the misunderstanding, don't try to correct it. If, if it's clarification, don't offer it. Your first words are, I'm sorry. Those are your first words. And that's easy for some of you. It's like relationship 101. I'm not there yet. For me, I'm having to say before the Lord, right, you've got to work that into my heart so I can recognize. And so that is my initial response. I'm batting about 250, probably. I'm looking at her. Probably batting 250 for the year which is better than I was batting last year. And so that's, I, I, I want that to be my initial response. I don't want to be a justifier. I don't want to be a defender. I don't want to be, a, you know, I'm right. I, that's not what needs to come out of me. What needs to come out of me is I'm sorry. I don't know what you're, when you're backed into a corner, I don't know what comes out of you. You might want to ask the Lord. When we're dealing with sin, two ditches that we tend to fall into, one is to trivialize. It's not a big deal. Nobody cares. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. Well, if when I sin, grace is released, then the more I sin, the more grace is released. So let me just sin some more. And Paul says, no, you're dead to sin. Why, why would you live according to that principle that you died to? Doesn't make any sense. You're a new person now. And so if that's your tendency, well, I can do what I want because God will forgive me. What I would say is be who you are. Live as a son or a daughter. Be holy. Because he has called you holy. You are becoming holy and yet he has declared you to be holy because you're in Christ and Christ is holy. Does that make sense? So what is true of Jesus is true of you. So live accordingly. Don't minimize and trivialize sin. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Many of us fall way the other way. When we start talking about sin, our response is I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. Jesus never anywhere says do better. That's behavior modification. We need our hearts dealt with. And that's the work of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't say try harder, do better. He says yield more. Create more access for the Holy Spirit in your life. God says the Holy Spirit will move us to obedience. He will empower us to live righteously. So when we're talking about sin, if if you feel convicted over some area in your life where you should be blushing and you're not, You don't need to put a metaphorical rubber band on your wrist and pop it every time you sin. I would encourage you strongly. Don't minimize, but don't try harder. Before the Lord, God, I confess and recognize this is a sin. And I pray you would give me grace to walk in a new direction. What Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3 of that letter. Who's bewitched you, having begun in the spirit? Are you going to try to finish the job in your flesh? It's just foolish. It's foolish. You begun in the spirit, now continue in the spirit, asking him to empower you to live righteously. So David is a man, but he's also a man after God's own heart, which to me is a massive statement that this man who we see sin so egregiously is still a man according to God's heart. And it's not because he's sinlessly perfect, and it's not even because his heart's good and sometimes he just fumbles the execution. What I see in David, and I think it's what God sees that pleased him, is a responsiveness, and we've talked about that before. It's not just a responsiveness when David is confronted by Nathan with this sin, and David says, you're right, I've sinned sinned against the Lord. It's also responsiveness going all the way back to when we first meet David, and he's plucked out of a 
pasture and Samuel says, God's chosen you for a work. You're going to be the king. And David says, all right, I'm in. There's a responsiveness in David to the word of the Lord to him. You see that in Acts 13, 22. God is looking for a man after his own heart who will do everything that he says. Again, David's obedience is far from perfect, but there is an orientation in his heart towards the Lord. And when he is disobedient, when he sins, when he loses his way, however you want to phrase that, and that is brought before his attention, he recorrects. He course corrects every time. There's a responsiveness in David that I believe, I believe that's what pleases God. I believe that's what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. How do we cultivate that sense of responsiveness? How do we cultivate after God's own heart? I believe responsiveness is tied directly to love. The more we love Jesus, the more responsive we are to him. I've been married almost 21 years. And when I got married, I did not understand the beach. I got it conceptually. I did not get it as a vacation destination. So we're going to go and we're going to lay in some dirt. That's what we're doing. Sand is just dirt. It's white dirt instead of red dirt, but it's dirt. And if you like sand and you don't like red clay, I would say you're probably just a racist. It's the only difference. So we're going to lay in this dirt. It's 98 degrees. It's 117% humidity. And when we get hot, to be refreshed, we have this body of water in front of us. Now, this body of water is full of salt. So if you open your eyes, it's going to sting. And this body of water also has a lot of sand that's churned up by all these waves that sticks in every crack and crevice in your body. And this body of water that's murky is full of creatures that want to hurt you. And what we're going to do is take one month's salary to go spend a week at this place with everybody else in Marietta. It's the same people. That's what we're doing. That's vacation. I didn't get it. But I went. And I went because she loved it. I was trying to be responsive. And it's, I can say, after 21 years, I can, I'm like 42 minutes at the beach now. I like it for about that stretch. I look forward to it. For, I still don't get in the ocean, but for parts of it. They say you can see. You can't see. You can see like when it's this deep, when there's nothing there. Once the, once the animals are there, you can't see anymore. The more you love someone, the more responsive you become to them. And the more responsive you become to them, the more your desires and your heart melds and conforms to their desires and their heart, which makes you love them more, which makes you more responsive to them, which makes your heart more aligned with theirs, which makes you love them more, which makes you more responsive, which makes your heart align more to theirs. It's a beautiful and self-reinforcing cycle if you're loving the right one. The cycle is true whether you're loving the right one or the wrong one. It's just devastating if you're loving the wrong one. But if you're loving the right one, if your affections are placed in the right direction, then that cycle of love and responsiveness and alignment, you can count on it. Just like in any relationship that you have, the more you love, the more responsive you are, the more alignment there is between your heart, which causes you to love more, to become more responsive, to then align your heart even more. So how do you cultivate that heart that loves God at a deeper level, 
that will promote a deeper level of responsiveness, that will then provoke a deeper level of alignment between your hearts. Three things I thought of, and there's tons, tons for sure. One is to ask. We rarely think about this. You may, maybe you do. I don't meet a lot of Christians who regularly say, God, help me to grasp your love for me. Famous, great, weighty prayer from Paul, Ephesians 3. God, give us power to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is your love for us. Uh, we want to know that. And we recognize on our own we can't get it. So I'm asking you, God, to give me power, to give me grace to comprehend how much you love me. It's not selfish to ask. Ask. Ask the Lord to show you how much he loves you, specifically, personally, individually. Meditation. It's a lost practice in the church. I'm not great at it at all. But it is, I do think, over time, helpful in terms of growing in our recognition of God's love for us. You don't have to sit in the lotus position to meditate. All it means is to focus intentionally for, I would say, three to five minutes. So pick an, I would say pick a characteristic of God. Start with this one. God is love. Out of all the ways God have, could have referenced himself, that's how he did. It doesn't just mean that God loves, absolutely. God is love. That's an identity statement. It's profound. What does it mean for the God of the universe and your father to say, I am love? There are plenty of things he could have said about himself. And that's the one that he chose. What does that mean? What it would, think about that for 300 seconds and see if over time, if that begins to deepen your understanding of God's love. It's not a math equation where you put a minute in and you get a minute out. But over time, it's a practice that will form and shape you. What if you meditated, focused, three to five minutes, on the reality, the truth, and the, pro the story of the prodigal son? A rebellious son slaps his father in the face, says, I wish you're dead, give me my money. And he blows it and screws up his life, and when he comes home, the response of the father is to run to him. Who does that? What does that mean for us to be in relationship with a God who runs towards the rebellious? What does it mean for us to be in relationship with a God who seeks after those who are lost, even at the expense of leaving the 99, whatever that means. You focus on those elements and characteristics and attributes of God and these designated snippets. You don't have to meditate. It doesn't have to be half an hour. For many of us, three to five minutes of silence and focused attention and thought will revolutionize our life. We don't do that about anything. I would encourage you, try to work that in. Whatever your devotional life looks like, try to work in a little meditation specifically around this idea that God is love and the different expressions of that in the New Testament. And then worship. Worship is a, a way that we, we kind of train ourselves to respond to God. Kneeling, standing, shouting, clapping, singing, raising hands, closing eyes, moving around a little bit. All of those things are responses to what we're singing and the one that we're singing about. For some people, there's an emotional connection, and it's this kind of, I've got to release this emotion in this way. It's hardly ever that for me, shockingly. For me, it's a recognition. This is who I'm singing about. These things that I'm singing are true, and this is an appropriate response based on that truth. Does that make sense? You can be a thinker and engage in worship. As you're singing, you're recognizing this is true of the one that I serve and the one that I love. And this is an appropriate response to that. 
to raise my hand or to kneel on the ground. Those are appropriate responses. And I would say, and this is not always true, but I would say if if you find it difficult to respond to the Lord in the context of corporate worship, it's probably not going to be super easy to respond to him out there where his presence is a bit less tangible. It's a bit more difficult to discern his voice. And so I would encourage you, allow worship to be a place where you respond to this love that you're growing in. This, this, as your understanding and comprehension of God's love grows, allow that to fuel a responsiveness in worship. And I think it'll spill out into other areas of your life. I want to close with a, a bit of prayer. So if you'll close your eyes with me, that'd be great. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. And we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on, 100%. But maybe two things if you want to grab onto them. One... Is there any sin that you need to confess? And maybe the the prayer that you need to pray as Bo leads us in worship is, God, I need to know, should I be blushing? Are there sins in my life that I've just grown comfortable with and accustomed to, but they're offensive to you? Would you show me those? Would you show me that? God may not bring anything to your mind, and that's wonderful, but if he does, I would encourage you to agree with him. Even if you don't fully understand, I agree, God, I I get that. Oh, that's a sin. Honestly, I didn't see it that way. But if you see it that way, I'm going to agree with you. And so I confess that behavior is sin. And I pray that you'd forgive me. And that you would give me grace to walk in a new direction. Maybe for you it's not a socially acceptable sin. It's what comes out of you when you're squeezed, when you're backed into a corner. You're trying to save your own skin. Maybe you want to bring that before the Lord. God, I get, when I get backed into a corner, I want to show everybody I'm right. It's hard for me to admit that I'm wrong. It's hard for me to acknowledge fault. And I'm asking you to sow humility into my heart so that my response is to apologize first. And maybe your prayer is something like that. You may want to come forward and have somebody agree with you in that. There's something about saying things out loud, accountability that's not there when we just think things. So I want to push you in that direction. For you, it may have nothing to do with kind of the sin side of the equation. It may be the love and responsiveness side of the equation. And maybe what you want to pray is that prayer from Ephesians 3. You might want to flip there. It's verses probably 16 to 20. You may want to pray that over yourself, or you may want to come forward and say, ask these ministry teams, pray this prayer over me. Read these words over me. That God would strengthen me, that he would give me power to grasp how wide and high and long and deep is his love for me. I need to know that. So Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you speak? Would you move? Would you stir us? We're so thankful for the opportunity to be in relationship. Thankful that you're not looking for robots. And we're thankful, God, that you're not even looking for servants. You're looking for children. You're looking for sons and daughters. And God, I thank you that you have a room full of them here tonight. 
Would you draw us close? Would you conform us more into the image of Jesus? Would you deepen our capacity to receive the great love that you have for us and to respond appropriately? In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. Bo will dismiss us after this song.